0: You're now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. I love getting into people's journeys, not just hearing about the highlight reel and how, where they are right now, but how they got to where they are right now, because I know that everyone that we look up to, everyone, that has these things we want, has gone through struggles, ups and downs, doubts and fears, and more. And I like to get into those things as well as the awesome things that they have accomplished. Because I believe that our feelings of being enough, worthy, successful, fulfilled, lovable are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, then I'll feel it. Likely, if we keep putting it outside of ourselves, we'll just keep on chasing it. It is up to us to claim it every single day. Claim your worth, claim your value, claim your success, claim your fulfillment right now. On today's episode, I have Dr. Leah Lees. She is the shameless psychiatrist. Um, She has a book out called No Shame Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. Uh, I love anyone talking about shame and eliminating it. So that's why I was intrigued to talk to her. She's a double board certified adult and child psychiatrist, assistant clinical professor at New York Medical College. Yeah, I was intrigued to talk to her. So let's get into the episode and see what made her write this book and get into the work she is doing. So I like to start with, how people grew up, like what was life for you growing up? Do you remember any sort of moments? And especially since, yeah, you're the shameless psychiatrist. And like, do you remember like experiencing
1: shame at an early age? Um, good question. Yes, I do experience, had experienced shame because I grew up. Well, first of all, I'll say I grew up in Long Island and, um, with two, two really lovely parents in a very suburban environment and I think my first memories of shame were when I realized how much taller I was than everybody. And for a while at at the school they kept calling me PM, PM, PM. No, I could not, nobody would tell me what it meant, you know? And everybody called me PM, but nobody would tell me why. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, this is like kind of hurting my feelings. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't know if they're insulting me. And then finally, somebody told me it meant praying mantis, which is like a bug with very long legs. And, you know, I look like I was on stilts growing up. I mean, I'm six foot two and a half. And, um, and then I went to a party in seventh grade and I was in love with this boy named John, John Kazalakis, if you're out there <laughs> listening. Um, and, uh, he turned around at this birthday party. It was in a basement and he told me to jump and I don't know why, if I wanted to impress them or whatever, it's jump, Leah, jump, Leah, jump. And I jumped and hit my head so hard that I, everyone in the party laughing so hard I had to run out, call my mother, my mother come get me. And they never like let me live it down. Even like graduation from high school, they were still saying, jump, Leah, jump. And I never, you know, I never really fit in, in high school, which is genius because I do really think that late bloomers are always the most interesting people. You know what I'm saying? Like I was a late bloomer. I really fit in, in medical school. Like I like, like I blossomed. I was like a tree that was like, whoa, the leaves just went like this. So, you know, if I never blossomed, it'd be a sad story, but it worked out. But, you know, I think I learned that I was very ashamed of being so different. And it was because of that, I became extremely empathetic towards people who, it hard. So I didn't have it hard enough that it scarred me like that. I'm like messed up because of it, but I had it hard enough to experience extreme and intense empathy. And that's like what made me the person I am now.
0: Yeah, I get that. And I was, I'm not as tall as you. I'm ten now, but I was the tallest person in my, like, not just the tallest girl, the tallest person in my class for early ages. And my daughters are already tall. And like, I'm like, oh, you're so tall. And I'm already sort of pretending, like, you might be the tallest person in the class. And that means you're, that's awesome. And like, you know, or just like trying to, but yeah, I remember it being like some, something that was awesome to then at one point, like that's wrong that you're taller than the boys or something like it being a bad thing. And just, yeah, like these little things, same thing. Like I didn't have it that bad, but yeah, picked up for being tall, being told like I was chubby or fat when like really... I I was not even like an overweight kid. It was just, I wasn't as skinny as my sister. So she would pick on me in that. And then other people. So these small things that again, like they're not small, but I think that we all are likely carrying shame in some way from our childhoods of just like being teased in some way or how even like our parents or other people talk to us. You know, I think we like, I'm just now noticing once I had kids and even like how we can talk to, oh, you look so pretty. Let's brush your hair. It'll make you pretty. And like, oh, like, but you're already pre- like these things that we say then like how they can be like landing for a kid and I'm just, so I'm like so present to that now especially with my own kids yeah, yeah.
1: true true
0: um okay so all right so you're saying you kind of yeah you felt like you uh, not an outcast or something, but like, yeah, do you remember in high school then? Yeah. Did that you, yeah, that was like, they carried that on in high school. Did you start to become sort of, did you know, like from an early age that you wanted to be a psychologist and like, or what did you think in high school you were going to do with the rest of your life? Cause I feel like we also get that pressure. Like, all right, figure it out, kid. Well, Trisha, I was very lucky. I mean, I am a
1: psychiatrist. I'll correct you just cause it's uh, a, no, go ahead. I, it, well, about $300,000. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, which means I went to med school. What did I say? Psychologist, which is fine. I'm just correct. No,
0: I said, and you're psychiatrist. Psychiatrist, psychologist. There we go. I'm like, I don't even know what I said.
1: Say <laughs> it's, it's it's a it's a it's medical degree. Um. So so I knew I wanted to be in the field since 15. I was like the most revenge, most vision. I had a vision for my future that I don't think many kids have because I started, I was a very empathetic child. I started working at a local mental health hospital called Hillside with my aunt, whose name is Marie, um, who was the psychiatric social worker um, educated at Columbia. And she took me under her wing and I did things at 15. I should probably not have been doing i.e. like working in a lax, psychiatric unit. Looking back at it now, it had never happened, like times have changed. but And then, you know, like some patients doing some really, like saying some weird stuff. And at some point, them realizing that I probably was a little immature to be there. But it shaped me so much. And, you know, one of my first experiences, probably around 16, was working with an HIV patient who was dying, was a hemophiliac who I would visit every day and, you know, all my other, my friends were playing field hockey and like lacrosse and, you know, going to the beach and here I was like working with like dying AIDS patients during like a crisis, you know, the aid, that active AIDS crisis. that I was only, you know, I was young and yeah, that had a big profound impact I would say. And it also contributed to my uh, like I was in an outcast, but it tr- it really contributed to the fact that I didn't fit in because then it became extremely hard for me to relate to those kids. Like they just seemed um, fluffy, like they just seemed just dis- like disconnected from reality. And I didn't have that experience, and so I I kind of like chucked myself out of that arena, and you know, and like ended up finding a you know boy boyfriend at the Merchant Marine Academy, and like sort of you know going through this like whole like renaissance of maturity and. Kind of being like you know what I'm I'm done with you people I'm out but not in a bad way because I still appreciated them but I just couldn't relate to them anymore so I had a really interesting childhood compared to most people and I started studying electroconvulsive therapy at 19 and did a research paper on that in children at Hillside which is very controversial but they did have some cases there because you know these kids were not um, coming out of a catatonic state of depression and weren't eating and um, you know I would say that's pretty cool and interesting and different. Um, so yeah, I've always been sort of uh, apple and a bunch of bananas.
0: And what even made you want to start working with your aunt? You know, like, were you genuinely interested back then? Were you just like, oh, I, you looked up to your aunt? so like, okay, like, like, you know, like, what even made you be like, sure, I'll go work there with you? Like, that's not, you know, <laughs> were you bored one day? Like, you know, like,
1: <laughs> you no. Know, I'll have to ask my mom, but my recollection of it is that my father identified very early how empathetic I was. He said I was like an empath. And he was like, You are the most interesting child. You're gonna be surgeon general. Someday you're gonna change the world. You must. And he just threw me in with my aunt and, and he said this to my aunt. My aunt was like, Oh yeah, let's take you to the psychiatric wardens. Here she does. And it like she, like it like changed the entire course of my life. Like one little tiny decision like that, of course. Made all the difference in the world. It's like the butterfly effect. Of course, like looking back on it, it made all the sense in the world. Like, I don't, I, I don't, who knows if I'd been, wouldn't, if I would, as a psychiatrist, I wouldn't have known about it, right? But, you know, everybody loved me there. They were so supportive. I had these amazing mentors. that were doctors, Jacques Beilin, and Jacques Vidalhern, and Sam Bayline. And they took, took me under their wing at like 16, 17 years old and gave me these incredible responsibilities because they saw the light. So I've been like incredibly lucky. I really feel like my, I'm a visionary. My career has been, you know, my career has been so like into my core. Like, a, you know, I love my job. I love children. I love working with kids. Like I'm the luckiest person to get to do what I love. And has there been hard times? Yeah. But honestly, I loved medical school. I loved it. I love the kid. I mean, it was like being is like being at, you know, great adventure for me. I was like, wait, I thought this was going to be really hard. Everyone told me it was really hard. You know, there was only two weeks where I did night float at St. Vincent's and I was on a ventilating service, ventilator service. And all the patients kind of like ventilators in their mouth and they were all like gorked up. And then the, um, nurse couldn't get an IV. And she's like, doctor, we need you to get an IV. And I'm looking at her like, lady, you give IVs all day long. How am I going to get an IV? This? <laughs> like, I'm a psychiatry intern. What, I'm like, what? And then, and then I'm so like disheartened after to like stabbing these needles into this vented patient who couldn't speak that I then went to my locker, tripped on the floor, which was full of, um, cleaning fluid, got covered head to toe in pneumonia. Like, weaning product, dirty, hospital floor, dripping. That was the only time I felt sorry for myself.
0: (laughs) Did you, um, so it sounds like from an early age, other people were seeing these things in you, your aunt, your dad, the doctors taking under the wing, but you're also feeling something like, did you always know inside of you though? Like, I want this. Did you ever have any moments of like, wait, do I want this because they see it for me? Or like everybody believes so much in me? Or you always just
1: knew inside? Like, Yeah. I feel this. The opposite. Like I just was, a. I just, I always had a very clear, um, desire. I remember at time thinking to myself, am I smart enough? Because when I applied to medical school, it was incredibly competitive. It was like a very competitive year. And, um, even though I had decent grades, I didn't have straight A's and, you know, I remember thinking to myself, am I going to be able to get in, you know, and it was, you know, of all the medical schools I applied to, you know, I got into two only. And, um, And I was waitlisted at Columbia, but I got into New York Medical College in Dartmouth and I didn't want to go to Dartmouth. It's too cold. But like, you know, there was that moment where I was like, geez, I'm not going to get in anywhere. And then my whole dream is gone. And I'm going to have to go to like some Caribbean medical school. But, you know, that was it.
0: (laughs) But you and were like, okay, if I don't get in here, that would suck. But I will go, I will make it happen somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. I'll go to the Caribbean.
1: And, you know, everything happens for a reason. I, did, I got wait-listed, waitlisted at Columbia and they didn't take me. And you know what? I didn't belong there. You know, it really, there's something to be said for being a big fish at a small pond in New York Medical College was that right pond. And they loved me. And, you know, being the star, being the smart one, being the one everyone looked up to, it's great for my ego. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been a very little fish at Columbia. So it, it all worked out. Were you able to see that quickly,
0: you know, or the parts of you be like, oh, I'm still not enough because I didn't whatever get that because I'm sort of like, you know, I haven't had that sort of situation come up in a while. But like where it is sort of uh, not. What is it? Yeah. Like when you're getting sort of turned away or something, then it can be like, oh, even though, all right, this is the right path and I'm trusting this and then feeling like,
1: "But why didn't I did not get that, <laughs> like, you know, like battling. <laughs> I mean no name the book here you know this was my exercise in rejection like man rejection that's the word I was looking for thanks I mean I have never experienced so much rejection as I did when I tried to publish this book I was like damn that's what I'm talking about my book proposal my
0: first book proposal has been out on submission and so I was in publisher meetings for the last two weeks and I'm in this phase of like (laughs) what's happening And this person said no, and they
1: love you. They love you so much. And they still said no. Your platform's not big enough. You're like,
0: Yeah. Uh.
1: (laughs) So that's the rejection
0: I was talking about in this moment of like, these people are interested. And so that's great. But what
1: about those people? (laughs) That was the worst I've gone through. I uh, probably ever. I mean, it was just like the mood like. But you don't like my baby? Why not? Is it ugly? You know. <laughs> and <brilliant>. damn it, <laughs> um, so that was horrible. But you know, you know. So what did you do in those? <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? I cried. I had some whiskey. I banged my head against the wall. Like cried again. And, and then I just figured, okay, that's enough. And, you know, I found this all woman publishing teams out of Canada, very small named page two, who, um, took me under their wing and here I am. So it worked out, but it was, it was very hard. It was a challenge.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the last two weeks of my life. <laughs> Yay. I have a meeting, but what does that mean? But this person's
1: if you want to talk offline about it, like not yeah. in a podcast, um, I can give you some advice. Well,
0: no, I was just in that since we're like for the... I was referring to back to like college and that, but it brought me into like today's and like, yeah, like, you know, going through that. Whereas again, I'm like, well, right. I'm trusting the process and the perfect publisher is out there for me. But also like,
1: I'll you- well, F you other people. <laughs> I don't know if you want to record it, but I actually do have some advice for you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we can... T- you know, very targeted, discreet. (laughs) Great. All right. Let's get back
0: to you. So then did you always know you said you did that, the research paper when you're 19 about, is it electroshock therapy? Yeah. Say things incorrectly as you have already heard. So in children, Yeah. So, were you always drawn to working with children? Yes, always, always.
1: Uh, I started working at ADHD camp. Then I worked with you know at 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 Hillside. Uh, then I started working uh, on the ECT project, and then I I just worked every summer at Hillside. Never got paid a dime. My parents are. Um, Happy to fund it as long as I was working and they were incredibly supportive. They actually paid for pretty much everything. I say that I have a half a million dollar brain because that's what they paid for it. Um, And obviously, you know, I was lucky that they were, you know, working class, but had, you know, my mom worked her tail off and, you know, it all works out. Probably do the same for my kids. But uh, I will say that like, it was amazing. What an incredible experience. My journey has been long and amazing, but I'm also an adult psychiatrist. I worked at Hillside Hospital with a lot of... Single sex couples get, you know, gay men who are on the HIV ward. Like I just had this huge exposure to diversity. I was just blessed. Awesome.
0: And so, yeah. So how many then years of school is that?
1: 13 years uh, from the day I started college to the day I finished my residency. Holy shit. Yeah. Um <laughs> a, long, a long time. And uh, a lot of it spent, you know, What, you know, with very little vacation, I mean, medical, between medical school and and residency, I must have like two months of vacation total. Like they don't give you any vacation in medical school. You work... And you're on your rotations all summer. And then residency, they pay you, you know, squalor. You live, you know, ramen noodles. And, you know, you get paid nothing and you work constantly, you know, what you hear. But I loved it. That's the thing. For me, I loved it so much it wasn't work. I never felt like, oh, this is just too hard. I always felt like, God, it's so interesting. Everybody's so interesting. The only thing is I did not like my OBGYN rotation. Those ladies were mean.
0: (laughs) That's it. And so as you're going through all of this, like, what did you imagine? Like, what are you doing? Why are you going to school for 13 years? Like, it's to be like, you're going to work. Like, did you have
1: a vision for? Totally. I was like, I'm gonna be a child psychiatrist. I love it. And what is funny is that, um, during my surgery rotation, I, was, I hate surgery. I hate, I don't like blood. I mean, I know I'm a doctor and all. It's just not my jam. I never found it interesting. So they have me on these surgeries and I have the light here. And the light, because I'm so tall, I would be right under that blaring light because the surgeons were so short. And... You know, I am like, it's boring into my brain. I'm holding this retractor, you know, like this. And I'm like, you know, spinning, spinning. And they're like, she's going to go down. I was like, I got to go. So then I ran out of the surgery and you're supposed to sit there and hold the retractor. And I said to the surgery guys, I want to be a child psychiatrist. I'm never going to need this. I'm like is there anything else I can do? And they're like, yes. <laughs> Everyone on the floor needs a stool guaiac. I don't know if you know what that means, but it means I have to give them a rectal exam. And I, I was about to say stool. It made me be clear it was likely something to do with poop, but <laughs> I had to stick my finger up their butt, feel their prostate, their anus, because I use correct language here. And I had to feel their prostate and then I had to take it out. I have to smear their poop on a little thing and get a guac. So I did 10, 15 a day. I really, really know what a good, like, I'm like nice prostate. Like I know what a good prostate is now. And um, they gave me an knife. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you did that instead of doing the surgery. And so then once you're out, uh, Yeah. How long did you go straight to like, is that building your own practice? Because I also don't know, again, since I've messed up psychologist and psychiatrist, like what is the, you know, what is the difference besides more school and like is um, and how you work with patients?
1: Well, I mean, you know, psychol- psychologists are PhDs, which and they can be clinical psychologists, means they work on um, patients, or they can be research psychologists,
0: research, yeah,
1: do studies. Psychiatry is really a medical doctor that specializes in the field of mental health. So, you know, mostly the biggest difference between clinical psychologists and psychiatrists are psychiatrists prescribe medication. Other than that, it's pretty similar. So we, we see patients... That's what I thought, but
0: that seems like too simple of a definition. Like, you do how many more years of school yeah. to be able to sign a pad? Yeah,
1: exactly. And then, like I'm like, I feel like it has to be more than that. Well, uh, you know, in theory, we can, uh, you know, really under, understand the medical side. So drug, drug interactions, we can think about like, you know different kinds of med- you know, laboratory genetic testing, that, you know, laboratory work. Uh, we'll give ketamine infusions now um, in the office, we, you know, so we can do those kinds of things that psychologists can't do because they can't prescribe. You know, psychologists have wanted to prescribe for years and, and the psychiatrists have fought against it because they just want to do like a summer course. But actually, it's quite complicated to prescribe medication. Like we're talking about pretty serious stuff. So.
0: Right. So that, yeah, you're like you're actually learning about not just the mind. Then you're like how these things would react to not just your mind, but your body. And so, yes, the DNA, like all sorts of things that affect because, yeah, I mean, I got to make I got prescribed things when I was younger that did me felt like more harm than good. So, like, I feel like for sure, like prescriptions, you yeah, you need to know more information than just like, oh, I looked on Google and it's like not saying that's how anybody descri- prescribes, but like that. Yeah,
1: it would you would need more than a summer course. <laughs> so, you know, it's great job. I love it. But I'm, I sort of started getting bored of not bored. It's not a great word. I love my job. But like I thought, OK, I kind of felt like there was more. So that's why I decided to launch a media career, write a book. And now I want to become, you know, a visionary in the world of shame and, and, you know, how to grow up without shame and how parents can deal with their own shame. And so that's where my career has taken me right now.
0: And what... So besides like feeling like, okay, I love what I do, but like feeling like something was perhaps missing, you wanted to do more, like where... What made you narrow in on shame?
1: Because when the Me Too movement started happening and I was looking at my own practice and these teenage girls that were coming in and I was just, I got a real bee in my bonnet. You know, these girls were having sex for attention. They weren't enjoying it. There was no pleasure. And the boys were, you know, struggling with, you know, putting pictures of, of, uh, naked girls. And they were like, they did not know how to ask for consent and they, they're bumbling around during sex without any clear guidelines of how they should, you know, approach it. And I'm just thinking to myself, these people are clueless. like who taught them about sex you know like where do they learn pornography and i was asking around and yes they did you know and i thought to myself what is happening here why are these kids so ill prepared to be happy sexually and you know then i'm seeing these horribly behaved adults and i'm thinking to myself well obviously they just were never raised right so i said let's try to raise them right and then i i came to the idea of like uh, originally my book was going to be more about sex education about you know polyamorous single sex families out of the box families where I really felt I had this great wealth of experience working at at St. Vincent's. Um, But then when I started writing the book, I said, no, 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 the book's not about that anymore. The book is about, you know, how to be sex positive, how to raise children to sex positive. And, you know, that, and then when I thought about that, I broke that down where I said, it's all about change. You know, the reason why we don't talk about it is because we're shamed and we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to address our feelings of awkwardness. We don't know how to come to terms with our own sexual history and trauma. And so we are not communicating efficiently to our children. We're just like leaving it up to pornography because we're afraid and it's all about shame. So then then it just, you know, it evolves as you write it. So that's where it came to the fact that in its heart, this book is about communication skills. It's like, how do you communicate with your child? Like everything to even like role-playing, like, you know, sit down with your kid and like help them role-play their life. Like, for example, there's a thing about like, if, you're, if you don't want to have sex with someone, how do you say no? you know, like what's the actual language to say no? And like, I wish someone had told me that because I got to tell you, I, I had to say no a lot, and I did a horrible job, you know, and I realized, look back. Same. I don't think
0: no one ever taught me how to say no. And the same thing, like, I feel like from being felt like you were different or not good enough because of your height or your weight or something like that, then like, I do, I mean, I can look back at while, while always being a strong, independent woman that for sure, I was always looking for attention from the opposite sex to like validate me or like, I want somebody to like me. Like I remember being 15 and being like wanting, Oh, this boy like liked me. And so I was like, so excited to like, then go to school. Like, Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. He called me last night and like, but I didn't like him at all you know, but I just like wanted to be able to tell people that, oh, this, yep, so-and-so called me and he asked me out or blah, blah, blah. And like, just like feeling like I needed that validation and then like the things. Yeah. And, but then, yeah, not being, not saying no and just being like, look at the picture. If I just, uh,
1: do this. (laughs) And then that's how you get pushed into this, you know, uh, these situations where you can't control, um, you can't control the situation and then you end up doing things that you regret. And,
0: and then you never tell anybody about it. And then years and years later, when the me too movement comes up, then start to remember all of these things that maybe were not right, but you weren't told even about them and nobody talked about them. So yeah. Also amazing how many
1: secrets people keep, <laughs> like how many secrets they keep around. Um, around their shame. Like they're, they're, even now, years later, unable to speak about their shame, that the internalized shame they have from their childhood. It's unbelievable. I mean, you bring it up in patient sessions and they are just, it's like somebody took the cork out. I mean, it's unbelievable what is there um, when you ask them. Of course, I don't, and the problem is when you internalize all that shame, you, as a parent, you pass it down to your children accidentally. By you don't say like, oh, I was abused or whatever, but you'll say things like men are not to be trusted, you know, or, you know, you have to be so careful what you, you know, how you dress because you're going to get hurt. And it's like, that's passing down the same chain, like there's something wrong with your body, you know, top comebacks your teen can use to get out of a situation where they don't want to have sex. So if the partner says that if you love them, then you would do it. Say things like, if you really love me, you wouldn't try to make me do anything that you don't want. I love you, but I'm just not ready. Says they'll break up with you if you don't give them what you need. Well, that would be sad for both of us, but much better than having sex, then breaking up. That would be super awkward. Um, tell them that if you get them aroused and they get blue balls, if they'll get blue balls if you don't finish. That's what I heard. <laughs> and it's like, um, you, your peace will just be fine. I know you can take care of that yourself. So it's just kind of like giving them the language.
0: Yeah, that's so great. And is it written in a way like it's for parents or for teenagers or both to read it? Like it's not like this is a, you know, like you could, a parent could read it and be like, let's, you know, let here's a guide for you or like also like a teenager could just read it on their own.
1: No, it's a parenting book.
0: However, okay,
1: I thought about writing one for teenagers, but you know, i talked to a bunch of teenagers they all tell me the same thing, which is they will never read it.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it would only read it if it was like hidden somewhere that like they're not supposed to, uh, like <laughs> being
1: passed around like I'm gonna do a series of YouTube videos mmm um, actually yeah an on anal sex for teenagers and I'm gonna do a few more because I have a lot of wisdom to impart to the teenagers but I think YouTube is the right form for them and you know we'll see how would they go <laughs> yeah
0: that's great Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption to tell you slash remind you. I have an awesome line of products to empower you, inspire you, encourage you to get out of your own way and claim your life. Especially my new product. It's a daily intention, connection, and reflection journal. It has the same prompts every day for you to get connected to you, intentional to what you want in your own life. And to also be celebrating your wins, your joys, and acknowledging yourself daily instead of being so damn hard on yourself and what you haven't done yet. We don't give ourselves much space to dream, to acknowledge ourselves, and to celebrate ourselves and our life. Do it with my daily intention, connection, reflection journal, everything is at shop.yourdryalgist.com. They really do make great, thoughtful gifts, sleekly designed, keychains, magnets, the journals, mugs, limited edition insulated tumblers that are so freaking awesome. They can keep drinks hot or cold all day. They come with a straw lid plus a flip-top lid. So, And you also, you can drink hot drinks with the straw. I didn't even realize that until a friend of mine was doing it you can drink hot or cold with either lid. They are laser engraved so the designs will never come off. They are amazing. com. And also, if you haven't yet, I have a daily inspiration app available in the Google Play and the Apple App Store. It's called Own Your Awesome, and it has hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to get you out of your own way and get you thinking differently about life. You can come to it at any time and pull a digital card and you can also set a reminder time in the app so that you get a reminder, get to go to the app every day because, you know, we forget. We forget to do the things that bring us joy. I just got, I allow how I want to feel in my relationships, my work and my life to guide me. How I want to feel matters. Oh, so thinking about how do you want to feel? in your work, in your relationships, and allow how you want to feel to guide you. And Maybe you'll discover that means ending things, shifting things, or just showing up with a different attitude. I also just got another card. Not everyone is going to like me, and that doesn't have to mean anything about me. So all different thoughts. Last card, I value my intuition. I know what I want. I know what doesn't serve me. I do think that a lot of our fears and doubts and shoulds get in the way of our intuition. But if we can just dig in deep and trust ourselves, we really do know. We just might be a little scared. (laughs) All right. So that's called Own Your Awesome. It's in the Apple app, Google Play store. You can also gift the app. Super cool. All right. Let's get back to the episode. I'm guessing. So have you gotten any pushback or had, did people try to tell you like, well, you can't write this because then you're like, you know, what do people like to say? Like then you're promoting, uh, teenagers to have sex or like stuff like that Yeah, I mean- by like having these conversations. And I think that that's what people, if one reason people don't have these conversations, like, well, I can't talk about it. Cause then they'll be more curious about it. Or then I'm telling them it's okay. Or like silly stories we tell ourselves. Yeah.
1: Yes. I hear a lot of, I can't talk to my children about sex because I want to preserve their innocence. You know, like by talking about it, I'm going to like tell them the secret of the world that they will never find out otherwise. And all of a sudden their innocence will be burned am looking at them like, really? Um, And I say to parents the same thing, which is that you are protecting their innocence by giving them information that they need to make decisions that will protect them. Um and that protects their innocence. And I said, you know, you think they're not gonna find out from their friends or TV or pornography or Instagram or you know, sexualized media or the thousands of movies out there. I'm like, yeah, it's not like you're gonna tell them something they're not gonna find out anyway. Don't you wanna get ahead of the messaging, you know, so you can counter program.
0: Yeah. And what about like, um, is it are also going into like how early to like start talking about? sex with your kids or like being aware of sexual predators, like that sort of thing for young kids. Whereas like having those conversations or again, where I'm already hearing, you know, I have a three and five year old, like you need to start telling these things and to keep them safe, but then also like, we not wanting to project fear in them of like, like how to have those conversations or how, if that's in the book or just how you tell people to start having that. You know, I just had an
1: Instagram live about, with Christina Cuomo about taking the blame and shame out of your mom game because she was really interested in the topic of sexual predators on social media. So, you know, I, I think that social media and media has gotten so sexualized and so out of control. I mean, I really think the media companies are um, like Facebook and all those things are not doing a good job protecting children. And I think they need to take some accountability for that, but culture aside, which I can't change Yes, parents absolutely need to get ahead of this in so many ways.
0: Um, yeah, I'm not even talking social media, just like the fact that unfortunately, you know, you don't know. The soccer coach, the this, the friend's dad, the neighbor, the relative, like the horrible realities that exist in the world Yeah, you know. of sexual abuse. And so like, again, even as young kids wanting to like, okay, nobody can touch you without your permission sort of stuff. But then like, you know, like, like when do you feel like it's good to say those things and how to say those things? I mean, because sex- it's, it's easy to be like, that stuff doesn't exist. So I'm not going to talk about it. That would never happen to my family.
1: <laughs> it's not happening. It's not happening. Um, don't have ostrich syndrome. You know, you can't bury your head in the sand and think that these things are not going to apply to your family because they will. Um, my first thought on that subject is uh, sex talk should... You know, be ongoing as soon as they can talk, which means that it starts with labeling the body parts correctly, like penis, labia, labia, anus, um, uh, nipples, and then you you really from there talk about hygiene, how to clean, and then you talk about who gets to touch you, uh, which people and 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 your parent, your caregiver, your doctor and who doesn't which is like any friend anybody you don't know you know how you have to immediately tell your parents if anyone were to try and then there's like the next round layer in the next round in of uh masturbation like you can touch yourself it feels good you should touch yourself but you just got to do it when you're alone and and then you layer in reproduction and biology and you know it's just constantly layering 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 the sex positive education and then there's, you know, that's the other piece. But from your perspective as a joyologist who loves like, you know, thinking about um, positive affirmations and things like that. It's also about being very positive about your own body in front of your children, telling your child how proud you are of your body, how much you love that your breasts, allowed, you know, nourished, you know this younger child is a baby and how amazing that is and how wonderful it is that you can do this exercise because your body is healthy and how wonderful it is that your child's body is healthy and just constantly positive affirmations about yourself and your child's, you know, reproductive organs, their health, their, you know, to develop this sex positive and body positive self-esteem.
0: Yeah, I get that. It's, and it's interesting, again, even like with my body and how I talk about my body with them, but I've even noticed is something like, drawing a picture and like you know mom can you draw this whatever and i've never felt that i'm good at drawing whatever so i wanna say oh i'm not really the good best drawler i'm not good and i've already seen like me saying that to her is like how is that giving her an idea of like how good of a drawler she's going to be that i'm like my drawing is better than hers cuz she's young but i'm saying it's not good enough i'm terrible i'm not a good drawler and so then just like stopping that sort of talk like that's like different from body but it just like that reminded me of like in the moment of like why am I telling my daughter I'm a terrible drawer? I'm a bad drawer. Like, like how would she see that and put that on her own? So the same thing if in our bodies, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm to this or don't look at my body or I don't like my stomach or whatever kind of thing it could be. Then like, then she's just like in her mind. You just don't know where
1: these kids are filing things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you denigrate yourself. And um, I think, I think you should also, you know, be willing to make, admit when you make a mistake or if you catch yourself saying, Oh, I need to go on a diet. You should say, oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean diet. I mean healthy eating. I need to just eat healthier because it's good for you. your body. Nourish your body, you know, and then you can catch yourself and just, you know, frame shift. And that's CBT for you. It's like this idea of cognitively reframing, reframing your thoughts to be more rational, catching yourself when you do act irrationally and reframing either, you know, right in front of your child or in your own mind. And, you know, overall be very forgiving of mistakes, because we all make mistakes. And that's a very uh, cognitive, healthy thing to say, like, okay, I messed that one up, like parenting fail, but that's okay. <laughs> you know,
0: Yeah, no, I think that's so big, again, like for no matter what, it's whether yourself, you're talking to a colleague, uh, your child, anything that like, I think something that we all do is act like, oh, we'll get it right next time instead of correcting on the spot. Whereas I'll even be, you know, if I'm trying, okay, I'm trying to not use the word crazy so much anymore. And instead of like letting it come out and then being like filed, whoops, I said it to me like actually saying out loud, let me rephrase that. I'm trying to not use that word anymore. You know, like that I think that we can be like, next time I'll get it right. Or this fear of looking a certain way by correcting ourselves or by calling out any sort of like mistake or, oh, I said diet or whatever it is that like, no, but by actually like doing it in the moment, it gives us more power and strength, right? To create factual changes instead of like, oops, I did it again. So file that away for next time. I won't do that. Or, Yeah.
1: Right on. Right on. I agree.
0: Going back to talking with little kids and your name, like naming the actual body parts. So what about like even calling them like your private parts? Is that a good thing or is that shame inducing or, you know, like that sort of stuff, whereas I'm now all like, I don't know what is, you know? I mean, I like
1: the idea of private only because I think it sets home the message that it's not for everyone to see, which is, which is true about culture in general. Like, why do we cover up our nipples and our, you know, and our labia? you know, we cover it up. It's almost never exposed except for in certain cultures because it's culturally taboo, not because there's anything wrong with it or shameful. It's just culturally taboo. If you're in a tribe in Africa, you might walk around, you know, with your nipples hanging out and nobody would bl- bl- blink an eyelash. But because we live in uh, the society we live in, we cover those things up. So they are kept private, you know? And, and for me, it's a little bit good messaging because it's like, okay, these, this area is private. Um, to you and your family and, um, socially appropriate times, but meaning like your, your family might go skinny dipping. And in that case, it's, it's fine. You know, your family might, you know, whatever they're doing, have a naked dance party or whatever it is in those, but you're not going to go to school naked. So you have to just explain to them that that's because, you know, people dress a certain way in different places and in France you might not and you know you might go to the beach with your you know without a top on and that's fine in France it's just like that's the way culture has evolved and you know this is what it's like where we live and that's about your values as a family but I do like the word private because the private it implies the kids like please don't let anyone look there or touch there without at least telling me or having your direct consent so and I, and I say to my children, eight and 10, like someday, you know, somebody is going to want to touch you there and it's going to feel really good. And that's called sex. I was like, but you're not ready for that now. So right now, the only one that's allowed to touch you, because I'm done with touching them there, they know how to clean themselves, you know, is the doctor and yourself, you know, it's, I'm very clear. I'm like, that's it. So, you know, my daughter comes up from school the other day and she's like, oh my God, you know, Bryce, you know, he... Banked me, and I told him, "This is my private, and you're not allowed to touch me there." And I told him, and I said, "Great, you know, got the message."
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and that is something that's come up with me and my young kids with the skinny dipping thing. Like, yeah, we live in Southern California; it's hot. We have a pool, so they often are like, "Let's go swimming," and they just take their clothes off. We don't wear—they don't wear bathing suits. I do, but whatever. But then going to the beach, then my three-year-old is very much, "No, I don't like bathing suits. I don't like to wear a bathing suit." And I was like in my mind again, I'm like, well, you know, like we wear a bathing suit, but she tries to take it off. I'm like, whatever. And then I'm like, ah, I know. Okay. You you do have to wear the bathing suit. And so then like, again, it was this weird thing of like, oh, you're just still a baby. Okay. No, but now you're like more of a kid. And so let's wear a bathing suit. And like, yeah, like, so I was just like, look, we have to wear, everybody's wearing bathing suits here. We wear bathing suits here. And just, yeah, it's an interesting thing of like something as small as that for like a small child then coming up and how do I talk about this? And is this shame isn't it? Am I telling you you're wrong because you're naked? And so like just these little things, again, that it is like makes you like think about like, I think I'm fine if you're naked. Oh, but I don't know who's at the beach. And like, again, like wanting to be like, everybody's fine. Nobody's it's fine that you're naked. Nothing would ever happen. There would be no bad people here. And you just don't know.
1: Yeah, I think you got to explain to them about, you know, there are there are different ways you dress in different places. Like, for example, you say to your kid, you wouldn't cook naked. Right. Because whatever you're cooking could spill onto your your body parts and hurt you. So, you know, that would be a situation in which you wouldn't, you know, be naked. We might all skinny dip at a pool naked, but you don't go into school naked because it might make other people uncomfortable because, you know, you know, the people around us believe where we live that you have to be clothed when you're in public. You could just say that. So it's like, you know, they'll get it. You know, they may not understand every nuances. You're certainly not going to launch into like sexual predators and all that. But you are going to say like, you know, and they get that because listen, they have to behave a certain way at school. They behave differently at home. They behave differently at their friend's house. They're not stupid. Like this is not, this is not lost on them already. So you say there are certain ways you dress and behave in different contexts. And this happens to be one where you have to be clothed and they'll get it. They won't necessarily understand it deeply, but they'll get it. And that's fine. That's all you have to say. Okay, back
0: to like shame with anything, whether it's teenagers, young kid, adult, what are like, what are your ways to help people heal from shame?
1: Mm. Yes. So, you know, for adults in my book, I talk about healing from shame has to do with cognitive reframing, which means um, taking the thoughts or the stories of your life, writing them down, and then changing them to be more rationally minded and passing down the pearls. So for example, I'll say like my sexual story, you know, and then I'll talk about, you know, my fears for my child's sexual journey, you know, so I'll just change it to say, okay, what are the positives that came from those things? So for example, My sexual story, this is an impatient example. My sexual story is filled with hard and bumpy times. My parents were not always happy and did not seem to have a great sex life. My first sexual experiences were unfulfilling. I was never open-minded regarding others and their sexualities when I was young. I learned to be more open as I got older and learned how to make myself experience sexual pleasure. This was liberating, but took far too long. And then my story with cognitive reframing would be learning about who you are sexually. This is what you would pass down to your child. It takes a long time and is a process. It's easy to get confused. You do not need to figure it out quickly. Trial error helps you to figure it out. As parents, we may make mistakes and that may not always be the best role models. Feel free to ask. Feel free. Ask us questions. And I will try to be as open as possible. I want your journey to be fulfilling and for the painful times to be shared so we can all learn and grow together. So that's what I mean. Like you're taking the pearl from your sexual history, you're breaking it down and you're saying, what do I want to pass down? What am I going to take from it? I'm going to take away, I'm going to take the shame and blame out of my game. And I'm just going to focus on what I learned and what is the positive aspects. And I'm going to try to repackage the rest and say, life's a journey. Like I made mistakes, bad things happen, but I'm not going to focus on the bad things I am going to focus on why I'm grateful that I learned things from the experience. And that's how you get rid of it. And that's all like basics of CBT.
0: Yeah. And that's what like, I think, you know, people be like, how can I be grateful for it? It's not like saying like, oh, I'm so happy that happened. But again, like just looking at it through a different lens and like this did happen, even if I wish it hadn't happened. So like, yeah, what, how did this impact my life? It made me learn about this, maybe stronger here, like whatever. So like, yeah, finding the gratitude, it doesn't mean like, I'm so glad that that thing happened to me, or that I felt this way for years, <laughs> or oh, And then and, and of
1: course, like from someone who' raped and had a lot of sexual trauma, I'm not going to be like, how be grateful for the experience. But you know, that's a very unethetic. Uh, but what I do say to my sexual um, abuse survivors, and I've had many in my practice, is that you are the person you are because you had all these experiences, and you can't change the past. What you can do is look at what you learned and look and be grateful that you are who you are now and that has shaped you to become this human being standing in front of you right now and you know it's not going to help to have a pity party you know it's not going to help to relive the trauma over and over and over so if you're scared to get hurt or raped again then what are you going to do about it how are you going to keep yourself safe are you going to take a self-defense course you know are you going to you know um are you going to take a self-defense course are you going to um give money, donate to sexual abuse survivors. Are you, you know, you can take an active role in those things, but you cannot sit here and tell me that you are a victim always and for the rest of your life. So what are you going to do about it? And that is so incredibly empowering. It's such a great message and take the pearls, you know, take the pearls out of the story and, you know, collect the pearls and make a necklace. Don't, you know,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you're not saying like, oh, you're not ever allowed to be upset that it happened to you ever. But yeah, like living your entire life feeling sorry for yourself and like that you were robbed of the life you deserved or something like that isn't going to serve you. It sucks that that happened. How can you get into action to shift, shift,
1: shift the rest of your life because you have the rest of your life to live? And if you are terribly traumatized, of course, like there's things that we actually do to like bring down the trauma um, that I could talk about if you want, like, you know, by actually helping them repackage the memories so they're not so emotionally reactive so that they're not constantly grieving. But after you do that, after you repackage those, those traumatic memories, then you got to move on. Then you got to like look to the future. You can't keep reliving the past.
0: Yeah. Okay. Anything last that you want to say or share before
1: I get to like the the final questions I ask everybody? Or no, no. I think I'm. I mean, unless you have anything you want to say, I I would love to uh, to answer your final question.
0: Okay. So first, I'm going to bring up an image of the phrases that I have on keychains for my product line, and I ask every guest to not necessarily pick which phrase they like the most, but which one they would want needs need want as a reminder in their life
1: right now and why i would choose fuck the shoulds do the <laughs> wants
0: <Woo-hoo. laughs> and why are you feeling that one right now
1: um because people you know one of the cognitive distortions that i teach in my practice is shoulds which means that people spend a lot of time in the shoulds um and i tell people do or do not there is no try like yoda and I say, like, if you're not, if you don't do it, you didn't do it. So don't feel guilty about it. And if you want to do it, then do it. In which case, that's great. And but what you shouldn't do, you should not should. Like, you should not just sit there and say, I should go to the gym. I should do this. I should eat healthy. You know, you if you want to go to the gym then go, that's great. I'm really proud of you. That's great. You don't want to go. You're going to accept that. Like, OK, you didn't go to the gym. You're maybe not as healthy. Or you're not going to lose the weight you wanted. But like that's okay. That's okay, too. You know, it's like you can't because you're going to end up living your whole life in regret and in fear if all you do is should yourself. So just give sheds up. That's what my book is about. It's called F the Shoulds Do the
0: Once and it's about eliminating the word should from your life. <laughs> um. All right. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels?
1: You should make one that says do or do not. There is no try as well. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> what? What's next? Um, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Oh, a go-to to raise your joy levels? Exercise. I mean, I'm sure everyone says that, which is kind of boring, but um, orgasms. Um... Uh, exercise, orgasms, and dancing. That's a good,
0: that's a good trio, <laughs> which you can fit one into different. Yeah. Whatever moments of your, day. <laughs> Maybe I um, all right. I ask everybody to apply this question or phrase really to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit, a way of being. Um, so what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me
1: is what is easiest for me is to take vacations. <laughs> what is best for me is to stay home and get things done. Because whenever I take vacations, I never do anything. So is to give up that and give up some of my fun times and actually do what I'm really good at. Because when I sit here in my home, I actually change people's lives or in my office. So... um it ends up being best for me. I'm not saying I should never take a vacation again, but you know, I do find that I'm COVID has been incredibly productive because I haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) So I should stay, like stay in my sphere more and actually work because not work. I don't even consider this working, but work on my vision.
0: Yeah. Um, Love that. Okay, the last question is, the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe that our feelings of being enough, successful, worthy, lovable, whatever it is, are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I'll feel it forever and ever, amen. (laughs) That it's something that we can claim for ourselves every day and sometimes we
1: need to do that every moment of the day
0: (laughs) because doubt, fear, this comes up. So what are you claiming for yourself right now?
1: Um, I think I'm claiming a vision Too, I was working with, um, some of my mentors and creating a, um, creating and manifesting a vision for my future and my career and how it's going to help change the world. That's one claim, a vision. You're claiming your
0: vision that is going to change the world. (laughs)
1: Like in my small way, not like the whole planet, but definitely around, um, shame and sex.
0: Yeah. I get it. I'm for it. All right, thank you so 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 much. We'll link to all your stuff, your book, everything. Thanks for doing the work that you're doing. Seriously, because thank you. We need it. What? We need somebody to do the work because we need people to be aware of it so that we can start thinking about things differently and talking about things differently and hopefully making that spread out into the world more.
1: You're very you're welcome. welcome.
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review. I really love reading your reviews and it actually like helps. It helps. Reviews helps. Help get the podcast made more discoverable for other people to be claiming their joy, their worth, their value to find more about Leah Dr. Leah <laughs> she is drleahleese.com her instagram is shamelesspsychiatrist um you can get her book no shame link will be in the show notes for full show notes go to slash podcast and for me everything's at yourjoeljust.com my products how to download my app blogs videos all the good things. And you can find me at Your Joyologist on social media. And I love hearing from you. So please shout out the podcast. Send me a DM. Let me know that you listened, what you thought, what you felt. I really, really love hearing from you. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> and again, if you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at com, and I'll send you a gift for my product line. You know, I've got a wide variety of products made to empower you to get you out of your own way, get you owning you are awesome. And they do make great gifts if I if I have to say so myself. I do have to say so myself. I am going to say so myself. They make really great thoughtful gifts that aren't cheesy or tacky. They're beautiful, they're sleek, and they do empower and inspire. You can go straight to shop.yourjoyologist.com to check out products. For the last thought, let's think. What are you wanting to let go of right now? Perhaps some shame. Is there anything that a memory, something that you look back and you feel shamed about for what you didn't do today, for your weight, for something that happened in your childhood? I don't know. You're going to have to do a lot more work than just saying I let go of it. (laughs) Let's be clear. Um, But The thing is, just by bringing your attention to what is it that I feel shame around, by bringing your attention to that, then you can start to do the continuous work to heal that, to move through it. Sometimes we just think if we just keep shoving it down and avoiding it, it'll go away. And it sure doesn't. It sure does not. (laughs) So name it and that will hopefully start the process of how can you forgive yourself? How can you love yourself through what happened in the past or what you're feeling right now? All right. Thank you so, so much for choosing to spend time with me by listening.
1: Keep on listening to some other awesome episodes or I'll catch you back here next week.